gather once again on the mic. Sorry about that. There we go. Well, it's great to see everybody this morning. As always, grateful to the Lord that He gives us another day uh, to gather and worship His holy name. We're going to continue our uh, journey now through First Samuel. If you would please uh, turn to First Samuel chapter four. First Samuel chapter four. Our verses this morning will be uh, 19 through 22, but I would like to pick up at verse 18, just so we can kind of uh, reflect a little bit on what has just happened. First Samuel chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 18. And it came to pass... When he had made mention of the ark of God, that he fell off his seat backward, speaking of Eli here, by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. And his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we're, we're honored to be here. Uh, we're honored to uh, be able to call ourselves Christians. Lord, we're thankful for your blood, your perfect, righteous, holy blood that satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf and has given us the newness of life. Lord, be honored today through the preaching of your word, through the worshiping of your son Christ. Lord, may your spirit move mightily and powerfully amongst your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. The basic theme of the first book of Samuel is this. God rules in the lives of men and nations. In judgment and in blessing, God is always working towards his appointed goal, which is the preparation of a people for the coming of the Messiah, a peculiar people who would be an instrument of his redemptive purposes, a light to the nations. The call of the boy Samuel is a perfect example. He was called to serve the Lord in the Revelation to him of the coming judgment upon the sinful people were all part of the continuing theme of God's judgment upon a corrupt priesthood and a rebellious nation. You seem to always go hand in hand, don't they? Wherever you've got a corruption of the people of God, you have a corrupt nation. We see this. It's a theme throughout scripture and it's a theme throughout biblical history as well. 
It's a theme even in our countries. You can all probably testify the reality of the shambles that we're in as far as what would be called the evangelical church in this country is in shambles. It's a mockery to the gospel. Many are ashamed of the gospel, want no part of the true biblical Christ, are embarrassed by God, embarrassed by his word. And so what they do, they change it and they, they, they start formulating a counterfeit to please the hearts of unnatural man. And you fill churches all over this country. You have these counterfeit versions of Christianity that are nothing more than abomination to God. And then what you see as a byproduct of the prime product, you see a nation that's literally pulled asunder. It becomes an abomination to God. It becomes darkness before God. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the scriptures are very clear that judgment comes first to the house of God, whether it be the Old Testament or whether it be the New Testament. We are the ones that are to be the salt and light to the world. And it all starts from where I'm standing today, this pulpit here today. You don't need an imposter. You don't need a comedian. You don't need a clown. You need the true word of God. And when this emanates from the pulpit into the hearts of the people, it goes out into the world. But when this is plugged up, then what you have is a counterfeit. You have a humanism going out into the world, and we look at the world, and we wonder why we're in the shape that we're in. We're responsible for that, by the way. It's us as the people of God have a responsibility to go out into this dark, sin-infested world with the light of Christ. That's what we're to do. And this is exactly what happened as we see as we continue to read through the word of God in this particular story, this event. Uh, this would be the final end and consummation of the dynasty of Eli, completely and utterly wiped out by sin. Eli, who judged Israel for 40 years, was judged himself by the living God, along with his apostate sons, and unfortunately, his daughter-in-law as well. In verse 19, it says that she was with child, indicating that she was drawing near to the time of her delivery. The historian Josephus says she was around seven months pregnant, but due to the sheer terror of the news that she heard, not only sent her into an early delivery, but also sent her to an early grave. The Bible says, for her pains had fallen upon her. And the literal meaning of this is that her pains had literally turned against her. And she died in consequence. This reaction gives a small preview of her character and love for God. Those who have no shame in their rebellion have little care for God. But a reaction like this indicates the traumatic reality that the glory of God had truly departed from Israel and judgment had come. Eli's 40 years of ministry also ended tragically. He too went to his grave with the same message. A few verses earlier, we read that the report had come to him that his two sons were both dead and the ark of God had been captured. As soon as the ark of God was mentioned, Eli fell backward from his chair by the city gate and being old and heavy, he broke his neck and died. It's very sobering reality when we look at this picture of what we see God t 
tolerating this ministry for this long. Taking a man of prominence like Eli, a high priest, allowing this to take place. A ministry that probably, before the eyes of the people, looked extremely important. Which, obviously we know, that the priesthood was extremely important. And this is why the judgment had come. I don't think Eli was necessarily a villain. I think his apathy ended up uh, bringing about his judgment. But I, I truly think by his reaction, because when he heard that his sons had been killed... It wasn't until he heard also as well as his daughter-in-law that the ark of God had been captured. That reality to him struck him to the core to such an extent that trauma blew him right off the, wherever he was seated at the gates and he broke his neck. We can see there was some inward love for God and still some awe towards God. And he was stricken at this reality as well. And this just goes to show us it's extremely important to recognize this. This judgment came upon Eli, and he was of God. He was a person who truly, I believed, at the end of the day, loved God. But his apathy and the fact that he lifted up his sons above God still brought about the consequences of his sin. And as even Ivan pointed out this morning, that even though we are Christians and we, you know, we, we are of God, God still loves us, but God does correct us. And judgments can still come in one form or another, not necessarily to wipe us out in the sense that we're the ungodly. But there's consequences to our sin. And I think that God wants to make it very clear through this story that just because we're Christians, we don't get away with everything. Just because a lot of these churches, they're preaching that we can be spoiled brats and God just doesn't care. We live in a world of consumption. We've got shopping mall style of churches everywhere. Just come and get whatever you want. Be full. Be satisfied with all these things. The reality is, is that God holds us accountable to our behavior. He holds us accountable to our sin. And that still is the way it is today. If God will demolish a high priest and his two sons and bring judgment upon a rebellious nation, what makes you think that we can live in such a way that mocks the living God and somehow we can get away with it because we think we're in the new covenant? Listen to what Paul said to this type of view in uh, Romans chapter 6 when he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And with an explanation point, he says, Certainly not. Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer to it? Does this mean he's preaching a sinless perfection? Absolutely not. Does this mean he's preaching you can lose your salvation? No. What he's saying is that we shouldn't use the grace of God as a license to sin. That the grace of God, when it's manifested within us, empowers us as a people of God to be able to overcome sin. The sin we once loved, we now hate. And the God we once hated, we now love. It's a change in relationship. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean we don't fall into sin. But the reality is it's our relationship towards sin. We hate it. The sin we once loved and held us in slavery, we've been set free from that sin, and we no longer love that sin, but we hate that sin. And the God who once we thought held us in slavery set us free. Now we love him, and we hate our sin. And this is a clear example to us that we may be able to come into the church and bear the title of a Christian and carry on our duties, addicted to performance, putting on a great show for others, but completely at odds with God. 
Think of it, Eli, for 40 years, conducting himself in the temple, performing the ordinances of worship. But when it all boiled down, it boiled down to a dead ritual because God didn't have his heart. An indifferent heart he had and passivity towards his children. He would not correct his rebellious children who continued to mock God. He looked the other way. Afraid to offend his kids. Afraid to call them out. Afraid to confront them. He had more fear of his children than he did the Lord. The removal of the ark is in in direct correlation with the spiritual health of the people. The ark was captured. It literally means, this word it means gone. Another word means wandered away or carried off. The glory of Israel, the ark of the living God, was taken away. Let that just permeate. Let it sit on you for just a moment and think about this reality of where Israel was at this time in history. What that meant. Why in the world was there such a traumatic response in the life of Eli and his daughter-in-law? Why were they reacting this way? Why was Hannah so infatuated with the living God that she pressed in to such an extent that God answered her prayer. See, this idea of, 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 of knowing the living God wasn't taken lightly back then. Or today it just seems like it really doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You can do this. There's so many options on the table. But here there was just a line in the sand and, and people were taken with the living God. And they knew that mocking God could bring about serious consequences. The glory of God was gone. It departed. It was taken away. It wandered off. Tragic. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, okay, I get that, but what are you talking about when you're dealing with the glory of God? What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the beauty that emanates from God's character, his holiness, his majestic sovereignty, his power and radiance, his all-encompassing wisdom and knowledge, his unchanging, all-knowing, all-powerful godhood, and his kingship authority. Other passages say the glory of the Lord denotes these visible manifestations of the presence and majesty of Jehovah, known in later times as the Shekinah glory. But we must understand, as the people of God today, the church of the living God, we must understand that this glory of God was personified in a person. Personified in a person. All of God's glory can be summed up in one word. Actually, I should say one name, and that is Jesus Christ. In whom the Bible says, all the treasures, all the treasures, Not just some, not just partial, but all of the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In Acts 4.12 it says, For neither is there any other name under heaven that is given among men where we must be saved. Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 says this, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Charles Spurgeon makes a note of this when he says, the apostle had also received the knowledge of the glory of God. Never had the God of Abraham appeared so glorious as now. God in Christ Jesus had won the adoring wonder of the apostle's instructed mind. He had known Jehovah's glory as the one and only God. He had seen that glory in creation declared by the heavens and displayed upon the earth. He had beheld the glory in the law which blazed from Sinai and shed its insufferable light upon the face of Moses. But now beyond all else, he had come to perceive the glory of God in the face or person of Jesus Christ. And that had won his soul. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him, Jesus Christ, dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says, That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We see his glory and his supremacy in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by all by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And this image that the verses and scriptures are painting before our eyes this morning should make us want to humbly bow before the King of Kings. This is the glory of God manifested in Jesus Christ. I like what Psalm 4.4 says, Stand in awe. Stand in awe and sin not. See, the more in awe we are, of God, the striking reality that we have of God, the less we will sin. Because our love for God overrides our love for sin. Before we were held captive, we were in darkness. We were haters of God, enemies of God, rebellious against God, darkness. And then God saved us and set us free. He, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Christ came to set us free. Free for what? Free to worship Him. We are held captive in darkness from our own depravity. And Jesus Christ came and set us free to truly worship Him in spirit and in truth. Isn't that a glorious reality? Isn't that a glorious reality? It doesn't matter where you are. You have to go stand in some temple somewhere. You don't need a human mediator. But you can come to Christ at any moment. You can seek God at any moment. R.C. Sproul writes, 
Augustine often spoke of the gravitas of worship or the gravitas of worship, which really comes to the word where we get gravity. The gravity of worship, the seriousness of mind they must have when we enter into God's presence. We worship a weighty Lord, so we must always consider whether the worship we offer is light or heavy. Does our worship reflect the significance of all of God's attributes? Or does it treat him merely as our best pal? To glorify God is to give him the honor he is due. So let us never offer anything less to him. The gravity of worship. Psalms 96.3 says, Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all people. This is a reality for those of us who have been converted and transformed by the glory of God, by his glorious gospel. And this is the reality that we see, that the reaction to this is that we become ones that ultimately declare his glory among the nations. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, and two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one cried to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And after a startling transformation... And the removal of his sin, he cries out, Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Send me. You see, it's the, it's the byproduct of the main product there. Once God moves upon a human soul and he saves them and he removes their heart of stone and he puts within them a new heart and he puts his spirit inside of you, grants you new desires, new affections, new loves, You become addicted to him, infatuated with him. And in response to that, you can't shut up about him. He's your consuming passion. I mean, this life is going to pass us by so fast. And all the time we spend trying to get the acclamation of men and the approval of men and being seen by men, just we spend so much time worried about what other people think of us. When time is so short, we must understand what the most important things. What does God think of you? And God said He's pleased with you in Jesus Christ. And if that's reality, you're free from the bondage of people and the, and the bondage that people place upon you and the standards people put upon you. Hollywood standards, all these standards, they're coming upon you to somehow be able to give you a measuring, grade, measuring gauge of what your worth is. My worth isn't determined by what the world thinks of me, or how much money I have, or how pretty I am. My identity is in Christ, and my worth is in Him. And with this reality, you can run into an army of naysayers and not fear, for the living God is with you. Colossians 1.27 says to them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, what is this? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our confession says, what is the chief end of man? Well, man's chief end is to what? 
to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You see, being a Christian isn't just this stoic reality that we have this view of God and we are the stiff religious people that walk around just to obey a bunch of rules and we just become this dead, ritualistic, cold religion. It's not it at all. We made contact to the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And there is an enjoyment that should come out of us. We shouldn't be always cowering in fear and worried and scared of God all the time. The Bible says we can come to the throne of grace with boldness. Never before has it ever been seen throughout the Old Testament. There was no boldness coming in to the temple where their lives could literally be taken from them. At any moment, they did anything wrong. The high priest would be wiped out and then drug out. That sounds pretty fearful to me. As a matter of fact, I probably wouldn't do it. I mean, unless God called me and this was part of his sovereign ways in my life. I'm not saying that, but I'm just talking as a man. It wouldn't be my job of choice. But now that Christ has saved us, he says to us in the book of Hebrews that we can come boldly. We don't have to worry. We can come. The shame's been removed. The fear has been removed. We can come. Why? Because Christ, our advocate, stands in our place. He absorbed the full wrath of God in our place. Isn't that an amazing reality? You don't have to impress people anymore. You can be free in how Christ has made you and designed you and called you. Live there. Eli's daughter-in-law understood this reality and now it was gone. Along with her husband and father-in-law. How tragic. God had departed from his people. What could compare to this? Certainly not the death of her loved ones. Not even her own child could compare. When the woman or the midwife who stood by her and said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. Do you guys recall this going in other times throughout the Bible where this message was given to others? And the reality, think of Hannah. Think of Mary. Think of these things. And there's many other women you can probably think of in the scriptures that were blessed. Think of Rachel. I mean, think of these moments when, 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 when the declaration, you're going to have a baby. You're going to have not only a baby, you're going to have a son. To Hannah, she could hardly keep herself together for this reality. You've read her exuberant psalm to the Lord, her song to the Lord of triumph. Just amazing. But here is quite different and quite tragic. What delight to hear the melody spoken in the ears of a godly woman in those days, bearing the image of God, a display of the promise of Abraham coming to fruition, but she would not, as the Bible says, even hear. The Bible says she didn't even answer, nor did she even regard it. Very similar to the meaning that we get from Isaiah and Matthew when it says, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they were what? No more. They were gone. They were departed. And it says the daughter-in-law did not even answer, didn't even reply, did not even regard this message. There was a time when Hannah's prayers to God were as what 
The book of Romans says in 826 that there was groanings which cannot be uttered. Hers was out of desperation, a hunger that could not find its satisfaction in anything else outside her love and passion to God. Her insatiable desire that she would no longer be considered desolate and barren, but carry out the promises of God. But Eli's daughter was different. She seemed to have a different reaction altogether. In a book titled The Body Keeps Score, a book that deals with trauma written by Bessel van der Kook, writes on what he calls speechless horror. Basically, there's a point in human suffering where a person's trauma reaches a point to where the ability to verbally, verbally communicate the pain becomes impossible. Speechless horror. Trauma by nature drives us to the edge of comprehension, cutting us off from the language based on common experience or an imaginable past. The glory had departed. In some sense, you see here the trauma, the trauma of this reality that God was gone. Left her in a speechless horror to such an extent that she passed away at the message that the glory of God had departed. No words, not even the words that you're going to have a baby could stifle that reality and the tragic response of her passing away under that message. We see the dichotomy of the situation against the backdrop of Hannah's situation. One was elated and the other was deflated. The story of Hannah was a story of faith and life, but the story of Eli and his sons and his daughter-in-law all ends with death. Then she named the child Ichabod. Names are significant all around the world. Parents dedicate time and research to give the appropriate name for their child, ideally. But in the Jewish culture, they have laws and customs that they would follow when they name their children. There have been several accounts where parents carefully choose their child's name throughout the Bible. And each name is mainly selected from the events that transpired during their birth. So the events that transpired during their birth is where the name comes from. For example, the 12 sons of Jacob and their names come from the situation of their births. In Genesis 29 and 32, you can see this. Names are significant and names are extremely important. This is why, you know, many of us today, my wife and I, when we were, you know, we had seven children, we just, we used to go through the books and try to find a name, you know, we would just be so excited and we'd read a name that would read the meaning of the name, like, nah, I don't want that, you know, and, and uh, we would really just, you know, we would just search really hard to find certain names. And it's really interesting because when your kids start to grow up, they fit that name perfectly. You know, you could imagine them with another name. That's their name, you know, and it. It really is interesting. In Proverbs 22, 1, it says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver and gold. This is how important the Hebrew culture put on naming children. This is the importance of the scripture when it talks about names. And the name Ichabod truly meant something. 
and it wasn't good. Because his name actually means the glory has departed from Israel. Ichabod, his name means without glory. Then we ask ourselves, well, why did the glory depart? Well, we all know the story. We've been going through these, uh, these chapters. We understand what has happened um, with Eli and his sons and um, just the, the, the behavior of his children and the things that have taken place is just disgusting. But the ark of God had been captured because the Bible says because of her father-in-law and her husband, they were responsible for this. They were, she's holding them responsible for this. That their lives and their behaviors had brought about this absolute wreck of a situation. In her last words in verse 22, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, which she repeats again for the second time. For the ark of God has been captured. The Philistines had captured the ark of God. Let's look at a few applications this morning before we leave. Question we've got to ask ourselves. Has the glory of God departed the church? I don't think every church. Of course not. I mean, there are a lot of very godly, biblical sound churches out there. Don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of churches out there that can just go on as business as usual and not even realize that the, the spirit has left long ago. The activities, the games, the, all the things that take place have so bewitched the people that they don't even recognize that the Spirit has left long ago. What about your own personal lives? If you were to examine your own heart, and I don't mean to sit up here and be a pulpit bully, but I would ask you, like, and I would, as I would ask myself, what about your own life? Where are you at in your own life? How is your worship to the living God? If you were to take some time and just examine your heart and take an inventory of how your life is displayed before the living God, how would that look? Has the glory departed from your own life? And no means my saying that God's spirit is going to leave you if you are truly his. It's not the point that I'm trying to make, but we can certainly quench the spirit of God. There's no question about that. the gospel of Christ? Do you live by the gospel? Do you preach the gospel? See, it isn't just about just preaching the gospel. It's also about being gospel empowered to be a godly man or a godly woman, to have a godly marriage or allowing the gospel's power to function in the way that you do everything in life, to do all things for the glory of God. Your workplace, wherever you are, were to bring this reality, this atmosphere of the Lord wherever we go. The gospel is disappearing in this country. It'll never fully disappear because God's gospel can never be stopped. But in this country, you know, it's time, it is really, really past time for the children of God to truly stand up. And all of the conflicting messages that we hear through social media and the media at large, the TV, the news channels, the threats and all these things that just constantly come into our homes, into our ears, into our hearts, just kind of dictating how we should feel. We just confront that with the gospel of Christ. We're not to live in fear. We're not to be afraid. 
of the world. We're to conquer the world. Jesus said, I've overcome the world. Look at Hannah and Samuel compared to Eli and his two sons. Two completely different stories running together. Are we devastated by what we see happening in most of the churches in America? Are we traumatized with a speechless terror? I mean, seriously. I mean, you look at, you look at Eli's um, daughter-in-law. And look at even Eli's reaction. And then look at our reaction when we see all these things that are going on today in what was called the Church of Christ in this country. The things that they're doing, making a mockery of God. Things that God hates that are endorsing and they're pushing at us and calling us mean and evil if we don't endorse it. That we're unbiblical because we don't hold to their views of homosexuality. We don't endorse this behavior of transgenderism. We don't hold to it. We don't applaud it. We don't support it and get behind it. We stand to the word of God, not my own opinion, to what the word of God says. This is what God says. Even at the expense of your own popularity and your own life and your own reputation, we've got to be devastated, right? But you know, we're not left just in devastation. We have hope because we've been bought with the blood of Christ. But you have the only answer. Do you realize that? As small as we are, we have the only answer to the world's dilemma of sin. It's the gospel of Christ. They preach a different gospel. In which Paul says there's no gospel at all. They're anathema. anathema. They're cursed. And where do we stand? Are we living in a facade before others, thinking we too can even fool God, pretending to be something we are not, performing in front of others on Sunday, but a completely different person throughout the week? Eli managed to go for four decades and end up ruined due to his sin of apathy and idolatry. Eli's life ended in tragedy. Eli's sons played the part, whereas the Bible says wicked sons of Belial, they knew not the Lord. The term Belial means worthless or wicked. They were men of greed and lust. Wherefore, the sin of the young men, the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 17, was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. And Eli, God says to Samuel 3, chapter 3, verse 13, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. Hophni and Phinehas thought that they could fool God as they tried to fool others and instead caused the people to sin. Living in unrepentant sin not only would shipwreck their own faith, but it killed a multitude of others. Philippians 3, chapter 17, Paul said, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who, walk, who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk whom I have told you often and now tell you even crying that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. The former preached Christ out of selfish ambition. 1 Timothy 6 Three, Paul said, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ into the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud and he knows nothing. 
but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy and strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. For such, withdraw yourself. Now godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And our children as wonderful and as beautiful as they are and our spouses and friends and family, Jesus has this to say. When you think of this, you think of Eli. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this is the sobering conclusion of the reality. When God comes upon a priesthood and he judges it, and then he judges the nation for its wickedness. You know, it is a very sad ending. It certainly is because the ending of this chapter, we see the ark of God departing, being removed, which is absolutely, utterly tragic to such an extent to have died. Just at the message of this. But here we are today. Small little body of believers But it took a small body of believers to turn the world upside down. Read the book of Acts. Read the Gospels. Just because we're small means nothing. God can save by many or by few. I'd encourage you this morning. I'd encourage you this morning. Take responsibility for your own life. Starting today. As we're going to take communion here in a few moments... You know, I would ask you just to really consider your ways and really think upon these things and take some time and, and, to, and to really just, you know, ask the Lord, is there anything in my life that needs to change? Is there anything in my life I need to repent of? Lord, I want to serve you with the, with the remaining time of my life. Cast away offenses, bitterness, unforgiveness, hate, Forgive others as they, as Christ has forgiven you. Be set free today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this um, picture, really this, this picture we have of these lives of Samuel and Hannah and Eli and his sons. And, but the most important thing is, Lord, that we have this view of you. And that you are an awesome God. Magnanimous in all your ways. Lord, forgive us of our sin, Lord. For we repent, Lord. Send your spirit into our hearts today. Let us have godly cheer, godly joy. The kind of joy that perseveres to the end. The kind of the kind of joy that perseveres through the darkness, Lord. Let us be a light to the nations. Let us be a salt to the earth. For Lord, it's in all this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there one final uh, song of worship? Or is there no? Okay. Let us go directly into our communion this morning. Give yourself a moment and just spend some time in prayer.
I'm going to read you a few words concerning the Lord's Supper that we would do well to, to take it in this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. And he talks about different heresies, and he talks about different things, and talks about the Lord's Supper. He goes on to say, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For the eating one taketh before other is his own supper. One is hungry, and another is drunken. And he goes on to talk about our attitude as we come before the Lord and take the Holy Communion. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And then he goes on to say, After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as often as you drink, in remembrance of me. I'm going to call um, Gadarius and Ivan up, if you would, please. I ask you if you please hand out the communion elements to the people, please. He says in verse 28, But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep.